0: A nice enthusiastic response. Awesome. Um, I'm just going to open us up in a word of prayer and then we'll get into our sermon for today. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. I want to thank you for those who um, are graciously and humbly serving your body and your kingdom today with the hospitality, with the prayer, with the different service components, uh, people reading the Psalms called worship. Um, praying over the body of Christ and our benediction and the reading of the psalm and everybody in children's ministry. Uh, We want to thank you so much for um, our our missionaries who are going to be out on mission. Um, We pray for Renee Van Dorn as she's going to be doing a mission to Guatemala and we pray that you would bless that ministry, the the, the dentistry clinic that she's going to be serving at. And this morning, as we get into your word, we pray that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the glory of Jesus, and that the relationship to the Father would all come to fruition today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30 today, and I'm going to actually be reading out of the Pew Bible. So, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, grab one that looks like this, and we'll be on page 838. Um, be reading out of the ESV but of course you can follow along in any uh, version that you prefer any translation you prefer. Uh, This is part two of the DTR sermon series. DTR if you're not familiar with that it's uh, it's kind of millennial jargon it means define the relationship and um, what we've been talking about thus far and we're only one week into it is how there is a difference in kinds of ways to relating to Jesus. There are people who can just be around Christendom, and last week we described those as the multitude, the crowds, but those who, there are those who are also more intimately relating to Jesus, learning from him, following him, and watching him. And last week we saw that scripture calls those disciples. And today we're going to be talking about whether or not we are for or against God. And what what. I would like to encourage us to embrace today is that there is a deep importance in defining our relationship with Jesus with regard to spoken labels. Just like in personal relationships, maybe romantic ones, it's, it's different when you call somebody you're hanging out with a friend versus, you know, a girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, fiance, spouse, husband. Wife, labels matter what you vocalize says a lot about how you feel about that person or in this case how we feel about God what is spoken really matters and just for context we are going to be talking a lot about speech today In fact, in Matthew's parallel passage of this very scenario and Luke's parallel scenario of this very passage, the person who's receiving a miracle from Jesus is blind, but also mute. He can't speak. And when Jesus delivers the demon from this man, he begins to see and he also begins to speak. So this passage is very much about what we vocalize, what we audibly proclaim to those around us. And again, I want to say that labels matter. Mm. So uh, I'm going to read this passage. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30 in the ESV. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? The children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's the word of the Lord. Father, please have mercy and grace upon us today that our discussion, that this sermon would be anointed and would be true, and that it would be effective in changing our hearts. Not because we the church are powerful and effective alone but because you are powerful and effective and by grace holy spirit you've poured yourself out upon this church and you've made god's word alive and active here today in Jesus' name amen so we're going to jump right into it in matthew's gospels he talks a lot about pharisees and there's there's Maybe some reasons for that, but we won't get into that, because today we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. In Mark's Gospel, he talks primarily about scribes. According to Matthew in chapter 12, Pharisees are present here and are also involved with this accusation that they make upon Jesus, but Mark here is talking specifically about scribes. He doesn't even mention that Pharisees are there. So what are scribes? Well, scribes are like professional Pharisees. Just like the Pharisees, they had an astounding knowledge of God's law. But what made them different is they weren't just a sect of Judaism like the Pharisees were. Scribes were employed and they were kind of like a modern day notary. They had written authority. So they, we have records of scribes writing certificates of marriage, uh, certificates of property sale, of loans. They had a specific authority. It said that in uh, first century Judea, every single town had at least one scribe. It was a lot like a notary today. But these scribes were specifically from Jerusalem. Mark says they came down from Jerusalem. That's very common speech in In the Bible, when it talks about Jerusalem, because of its religious significance, it always talks about Jerusalem as if it's being on high. The Psalms of Ascension were talking about going up to Jerusalem. But here, it talks about scribes from Jerusalem coming down to where Jesus was preaching. And Jesus' ministry was primarily in the Galilee. The Galilee is kind of a nowhere city. So when it says scribes, important people, from Jerusalem, important city, came down to where Jesus was preaching, it's kind of like saying executive cabinet members from Washington, D.C. came down to Puyallup. And that's, that's no offense to Puyallup. I'm not saying that nobody important is there. It's just if that happened in the news, you'd be like, "Ooh, Why? What's going on? That's, that's something unusual. And, well, th- there is a reason for why they're coming down from Jerusalem to this obscure area. Last week, we covered in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and I'll just read it for you really quickly. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around, the Tyre, around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now, Justin made a point last week that says that these regions that are listed exceed Jesus' normal area of living. And they even go beyond the borders of what once the ancient which once was the ancient nation of Israel. It goes into Tyre and Sidon, a place of Gentiles. And people were coming to Jesus. People were coming from Jerusalem to go to Galilee to hear of Jesus. So what, what Mark is trying to say is that these scribes were sent to see what was going on in the Galilee. remember, these scribes are people of authority, of verdict. So they're coming to the Galilee to either qualify or disqualify Jesus' ministry. And now, so, so what is the verdict that they say about Jesus? They say that he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. So the scribes, these officials, they make a determination about Jesus' ministry, namely his miracles. This is the context. He has just cast out a demon of a man who could not see nor speak, and when Jesus says cast out that demon, they are left with the conundrum of explaining how this obscure, itinerant preacher from Puyallup would know how to do these things in great power. But this is, these guys, these scribes, they're not just outspoken protesters on a soapbox. These are important people. So when they say this thing about Jesus, it's more like a professional verdict. It's like a lawyer with a magnifying glass looking through a document and determining the validity of or disqualification. Anything that these guys say because of who they are, what their job is, and where they are from is going to be effective and is going to be influential to anybody with an earshot. So what's the decision that they make? Because it's important. People are wondering what they think about Jesus. They say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. or depending on whether you have a kind of a newer translation or an older one, it may say Beelzebub the reason for that is we're not entirely sure of the etymology of that but no question is they are accusing jesus about being empowered by satan himself Beelzebub, beelzebub either of those two they are certainly titles for satan so they see the work that jesus does and the only way that they can explain it is to say well look these people who've gone blind who can't speak who are harming themselves they're possessed by lower ranking demons but Jesus he's been empowered by Satan himself so Jesus has the highest level of occultic evil power and that's why he can cast out all these lower demons they they're not really saying that Satan is trying to trick anybody by having Jesus be this sort of secret covert. And if, he, if Jesus can just get people to follow him, then, then Satan wins big. They're not trying to, they're not making that kind of accusation. They're accusing Jesus of being so filled of occultic power because he gets his power directly from Satan himself. In Luke's version of this passage, he says, Jesus casts out demons by the prince of demons. They're qualifying him as a high ranking agent in the satanic kingdom this indictment is deeply influential to anyone who hears it it's highly liable to persuade anybody around who's interested in jesus's work to then discount jesus and not want to follow him because these important people with this important job in this important place have come down and made this decision so jesus won't abide this In 23, it says, he called to them and said to them in parables. Jesus calls out those scribes immediately. He wants to arrest this accusation right at the point of its being spoken. So it's kind of like, hey, you guys, come over here. And it says he spoke to them in parables, which means to set aside. He says, let's set aside this accusation for a second, and let's just talk about your logic here. How can Satan cast out Satan? It's a rhetorical question. And he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand." So he's talking about division. He says, hypothetically, think about a kingdom engaged in civil war. How effective or stable will that kingdom be? It doesn't take that much military knowledge to know that that's not a strong place from which to fight. But these people are Jewish. They're from Judea, and they have a history of once being a strong, powerful nation, the nation of Israel. That was almost like a holy empire. But after their second most prominent king, the kingdom splits. And that was kind of the first symptom of eventually what led to their entire kingdom crumbling. These people know intimately that division in a kingdom leads to destruction. Jesus says it's the same with a house. He's probably not talking about an edifice. He's talking about a family. It's the same with family. If families start squabbling against each other, they're not going to retain eminence, efficacy. And he says, so by that same rule, if that works today individually in families and it works today in kingdoms, then it's the same thing in Satan. If Satan's divided against himself, he won't be able to stand, but he's coming to an end. So Jesus is saying, imagine... This is what you're telling me. You're saying that I am the most powerful agent in the demonic kingdom, and so what I do is I come into the world and I cast out demons. That means that Satan is reducing his foot soldiers and not gaining any ground. That is the beginning of the end. The Bible describes Satan as a serpent, right? This is like a serpent consuming its own tail. Remember, Jesus is not just casting out one demon to demons he's constantly doing this he's made for himself a reputation by of being somebody who heals the sick and casts out demons he's casting out demons by the droves business is a booming jesus says your logic doesn't hold up very well scribes and then he gives them an alternate explanation in verse twenty-seven. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. I like how Jesus uses that, that contradiction. He says, But try this on the other hand, see if this logic holds up. And he says, he he uses this metaphor that the strong man in this parable is Satan, and he's built for himself a household, and he's acquired for himself a lot of wealth within this household. And in this parable, Jesus is describing people bound by Satan. Satan has built his kingdom and his empire by taking people captive, by blinding them, by shutting their mouths spiritually and physically And Jesus has said, you know, this strong man is doing great for himself. No one's going to be able to go in there and just steal these things that Satan has so highly valued, these lives, these people that Satan has bound. Jesus says that Satan will not let those people go willingly. Instead, consider that somebody has bound that strong man. What if somebody stronger than Satan has come and reduced Satan's power? Then can that certain someone come into Satan's house and be rescuing those people that Satan has kidnapped, has bound, has blinded, has forbidden to speak? Jesus kind of lets them sit with that He says, think of that logic. Does that hold up? And if, and if it does then what does that say about Jesus, who's built for himself a reputation of casting out demons? It says two things. One, that he's on a crusade of rescue. Jesus has built his ministry on mercy, on wanting to save people who have been spiritually kidnapped and physically disabled by the God of this present age that the Bible says is Satan. But it also says something very, very important. It says that Jesus is powerful and that he's more powerful than Satan. Not on equal playing field, but rather Jesus, whenever he has the will to do so and the want to do so, he'd come into Satan's house and rescue the people that Satan has bound. So Jesus says, just consider that. And then he issues a stern warning. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, But Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verses 28 through 30 is highly regarded as one of the scariest passages in scripture. Doubtlessly, when we present the gospel to people, we we tell them anything that you've done, Jesus is willing to forgive. He's willing to pay the price of any sin you've committed by his death on the cross. But is this our dirty little secret? That there's one sin that's unforgivable? I mean, Jesus proposes here that it is. It's the one exception. And something we can do wrong about this passage is we can dissemble it. There, uh, there are those who say that what has happened in this passage is an isolated issue, which we can never repeat. Because Jesus is not in our midst, and we've not seen Jesus personally cast out demons. So therefore, we cannot make this accusation against him. We cannot commit an unpardonable sin. That's good news. I would say that that, that that explanation is not accurate. Jesus said that when he leaves, the Holy Spirit will come, and we're going to do greater things than he did in the world. So if what we see today is an even greater expression of God's kingdom, how could we say that what Jesus did here was the greatest expression of God's kingdom. According to Jesus, the work that the church does is greater than his own. I would argue that we can commit this sin today. There, there are those of us who read this as, uh, as confessing believers and say that this is a passage for those of us who have not received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but because I have received Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I don't have to worry about this. Whew, good news. Good news. You know, I, I, would, I would somewhat agree with that. Quite a bit, I'd agree with that. But here's the danger of that. There should never be a place in Scripture that's not for us. There should never be a place in Scripture where we read it and we say, well, good thing I've grown out of that issue. Our Bible doesn't start getting smaller as we've walked more days and more years with Jesus. This passage is for us today. Non-believers and believers alike. So this is a very grave issue. And if it's a grave issue, of course, we need to delve into it deeply. So what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Let's break it down. Well, first, let's talk about blasphemy. Blasphemy is spoken dishonor. It's verbal. The word literally means an injurious report. It's talking badly about something. Now, we use blasphemy to talk about divine things, right? Talking about God in a poor slanderous way. But you can blaspheme anything if you slander it. You can blaspheme anyone by slandering them. You can ruin their reputation. It is a spoken offense. Now, what's the damage of gossip, of slander, of blasphemy? The damage is it puts a blight on someone's reputation in the eyes of anyone to whom you've spoken. It's an injurious report. We report things with our words. We tell people what we perceive to be true, and the people who trust us and love us and know us take our words with great value, like these scribes in this passage. The thing about slander, the thing about blasphemy, is it proselytizes. When we tell something to someone else, when we share it with them, it's because we want to share it with them. We want them to agree with us. Blasphemy is a proselytizing sin. It's a debating sin that seeks to win converts. Whether we're slandering a person, whether we're slandering a political party, or if we're slandering God, the heart's desire is to get people to agree with us. You know, our words are very, very important. Jesus says that our words will either vindicate us or damn us. Our spoken words will either vindicate us or damn us. This is in Matthew 12. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good food good fruit, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, one on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now the Bible talks clearly that there are some words that are just words, they're merely words, but oftentimes the things that we speak are, are cultivated deep within who we are. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever had a Freudian slip? Like, ooh, I didn't mean to say that, but I certainly was thinking it. And that's what, that's what the Bible says, like a volcano that's brooding. And when the pressure has gotten sufficient, it blows out of the top. And then we speak it forth. So the things that we say oftentimes are the best expression for what's going on in our hearts. Now, when jesus says out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks in the book of matthew it is in this scenario it is when the pharisees in matthew's gospel say that jesus has cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons jesus warns them against the blasphemy of the holy spirit he actually says you can even blaspheme the son of man Himself. You can blaspheme Jesus and it will be forgiven you, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When we propagate, when we slander God, it's because it's what's in our hearts. Now, the next part blasphemy of the Holy Spirit who or what is the Holy Spirit? I personally find the most helpful explanation of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. This is when Jesus is getting ready to be crucified and he has this last moment with his disciples and he's kind of giving them all the important cliff notes before he leaves and he explains to them who the Holy Spirit is. Um, This is John chapter 16 verse 8 it says and when he the Holy Spirit comes he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and I'm gonna skip a few verses down to 13 when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you you hear all that about speech all that the father has is mine Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In summation, the Holy Spirit has the work of showing people their guilt and their brokenness and their need of a Savior. The conscience, a guilty conscience, the beginnings of that comes from the Holy Spirit speaking to a non-believer. A realization that there's a guilt, that we are not the best people in the world, but that we've caused serious harm. You know those moments of clarity when we realize, I've caused a lot of damage in life? That comes from the Holy Spirit, because in the beginnings, that's a good thought. But what's next? The Holy Spirit also directs the guilty conscience-having person toward Jesus, the person who can save them from their sin. Only the Holy Spirit does that. And lastly, when somebody has made a profession of faith and wants to walk with Jesus, it's only the Holy Spirit that transforms that person to become more like Jesus, to become a better person, if you will. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Anything holy, any holy cosmic power, on the life of a human person is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is responsible for all of that. If you consider the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I would say the Father is the planner of the gospel. It was his idea. Jesus didn't change the plans. God is the planner of the gospel. Jesus is the executor of the gospel. By way of him dying on the cross, he's accomplished What were God's eternal purposes? Ephesians 3 says that the eternal purposes of God were realized in Christ Jesus. God is the planner of the gospel. Jesus is the executor of the gospel. Then what's the Holy Spirit? He's the distributor of the gospel. He's what makes the salvation available, possible, and offered to a human being. If the world is a sinking ship, and Jesus is a rescue helicopter. The Holy Spirit is a rope ladder reaching down. At, at the risk of making the Holy Spirit sound inanimate, because he's not, he's a person, the Bible says that he can be grieved, but at the risk of erring on that side, you can say that the Holy Spirit is the means to the gospel for the believer. He's the living link between human and human. And Jesus, our Savior. So, so what, what's the point in all this? Jesus says the one sin that's unforgivable is speaking an injurious report of this Holy Spirit who's our means to the gospel. That's the one thing that we cannot do that cannot be forgiven. What's the big deal? Why are people allowed to slander Jesus with their words but not slander the Holy Spirit? The big deal is that the Holy Spirit is that living link between human and the Savior Jesus. If someone in their heart feels deeply that all the things going on in the world, in church history, the power of the gospel to transform lives and transform communities, if the person in their heart has definitely made the decision in their heart and then speaks that those works are actually evil and are common and are anything less than God's holiness, they have perfectly and completely severed their opportunity to salvation in Jesus, to forgiveness for their sins. It's not just because that sin is so bad that it's irredeemable. It's that by definition, it removes the possibility of redemption. Think of that that analogy again. Jesus is the rescue helicopter. If you cut down the rope ladder, it doesn't necessarily mean that the the rescuers in the helicopter no longer have the desire to save that person, but that person has dissembled the means to do so. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can't be forgiven because it's removed the means for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So, now, something that is important to recognize in this passage is that Jesus doesn't necessarily say that these scribes committed this sin. Remember, he's walked them through their logic He's given them an alternate explanation. Maybe I'm not evil. Maybe I'm just more powerful than Satan. And he's let them sit with that debate. And then he gives them this warning. Why does he give them this warning? It's in verse 30. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. I'm going to turn my page here. When... When these scribes say this about Jesus, it's not just because they're mistaken, that they misunderstand the power of Jesus. It's that they're liable to make that accusation towards Jesus that he's evil, come to that final decision, and then propagate, and then slander, and then proselytize, and convince other people to agree with them. And that's, that's our passage for today it's severe it's grave but but what does it mean for us what does it mean for those of us here who have not made a decision to follow jesus or what what does it mean for those of us who have made a decision to follow jesus um i have in the past too too quickly myself disregarded this passage and say i'm not guilty of that because i worship jesus but again our bible's not getting smaller The more we become like Jesus, really the more heavily the Holy Spirit weighs upon us with conviction, with realization of the guilt of our lives. So how does this passage relate to us? Well, Let let me me first talk about those of us who have come to know the Lord and profess Jesus as Savior. How does it relate to those of us who would say that we are Christians this morning? Well, I think... The problem that we believers have is we find ourselves very, very important and very, very orthodox. We see the world and all the decisions that people who don't know Jesus, those people are making certain decisions, and we think they're so foolish for making them. We become frustrated with them, and we become angry. And we consider ourselves very important people, Christians on mission with a very important job, from whatever church you come from, like being from Jerusalem. We, we, we become like these scribes, and we take it upon ourselves to qualify or disqualify the work of Jesus in the world. We're so quick to say, this sect of Christianity, they're doing it wrong. We're so quick to say that these hyper-Pentecostals, the works that they're doing, are not true. These healings that are happening are not true, and therefore they're evil. They're leading people astray. We're so quick to say that these these cessationist Baptists, they don't give enough attention to the Holy Spirit. There is no value in their church. They're causing damage to the body of Christ. Why, why do we do that? Because we think that we're scribes. Whatever church you relate to, you may feel like it's the center of religious orthodoxy and importance in the body of Christ, like it's the new Jerusalem in this world. And we take it upon ourselves to qualify, quantify, disqualify other ministries. I would argue that we really need to be careful doing that. Because what if the miracles happening in that church are real, and God is using them to set people free, and we're calling them evil? What if what is God, God is doing in a church where there's not so much work of the Holy Spirit? What if that church is raising up really godly believers who are doing powerful works for the kingdom of God, and we're claiming that it's evil and blind and paralyzed? Look, this doesn't mean that we could never hold other ministries accountable to the word of God, to scripture, to determine whether they're theologically correct or not. It just means that we should stop occupying ourselves with that job. We've never been assigned that job by Jesus. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 is our job description. This is the Lord's servant. This is us. And Paul says in this book, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their sentence and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We believers are supposed to patiently endure evil? Yes. Evil in the world, stop, we need to stop looking at people like they're foolish. People with another sex of the church, we need to stop trying to disqualify the work that's happening there. Our job is to speak and affirm truth in gentleness. And that's how we believers fight on the side of Jesus rather than against Him, because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, but we are so apt to dividing Jesus' kingdom, just to put ourselves on the right side. In Matthew's and Luke's account of this scenario, Jesus adds this warning whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Christians today, do you want to be sure to not be guilty of scattering? Then do the express opposite. Jesus affirms something that we should do here, and that's to be gathering. Don't be worried about hurting people away from the wrong churches. Just be about gathering people to Jesus by sharing the truth of the gospel. Let's occupy ourselves with that rather than criticizing our brothers and sisters who are already in the kingdom and we disagree with them and marginal issues and tertiary issues. Let's let God handle those places and we gather to the kingdom. You know, Jesus says he knows that false prophets are gonna grow up in the church and they're gonna come to power and they're gonna do a lot of stuff wrong. And he said it's like weeds that are sown amongst wheat. But this is, this is the quote there. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let, bo- let them both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles and be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. God's going to reap, and he's going to be the one sorting The true believers from the not true believers that's his job our job is to be occupied proclaiming verbally the gospel and evangelize and we do that with our words and i understand the poetic profundity of preach the gospel use words when necessary i get that and that's wonderful however use words because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks We should be so overflowing with the joy and the power of the gospel that we cannot help but speak. And every time we proclaim the truth of the gospel to other people, it just affirms to ourselves that it is true. When I stand up here and tell you guys that Jesus is a good God, that he is Lord, and that he's a savior, and that he's kind and gentle and redeeming, it reminds me that that stuff is true. With the power of the gospel, if you don't use it, you kind of lose it. You forget, you become so used to the grace that God shows us in our lives, but when we talk, when we speak, it dredges up deep things cultivated in the abundance of our hearts, and we speak accordingly. Which is good, it's a good thing. You know, God's word is never complete with a don't. I know that a lot of the the commandments from the old testament is don't do this don't do this don't do this but it's that's the beginnings of the gospel the gospel is always completed with an affirmation do this so the, in summary to us believers the word for today is don't occupy yourself by judging other churches lest you accidentally blaspheme the holy spirit you leave that to god do this proclaim his gospel truths in words as well as deeds, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And let's have an abundant heart for the goodness of the gospel this morning and tomorrow and every day. That Jesus' kingdom wouldn't stop here, but that it would grow. That Jesus' kingdom would be the opposite of Satan's kingdom, that it, that it wouldn't be coming to an end, but that it would be spreading further and further like a mustard seed that turns into a tree. Now, but there, there's a word for non-believers today. If, if you're here with us and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, we're so glad you're here, and there's a word for you here, too, and I want you to, to listen to this word, not from me, some dude in a denim jacket with stains on his shirt. There's stains. I don't know if you saw it. We're close enough to the end of the service that I can point it out. Um, these words don't come from me. They come from, from God who loves us deeply, for those of us who don't know Jesus today, the word is that there's no neutrality. We're either for Jesus or we're against him. Either you'll determine that Jesus is Lord and he's Savior and he is good, or ultimately you'll come to the same conclusion that these scribes did, that he's a curse to humanity and that he's evil. I know that if you're here, you probably don't feel that aggressive against Jesus. Jesus. You may have a more gentle view that maybe Jesus was mistaken, but think it through. Follow that logic. Let's listen to Jesus and walk down that logic like he did with the scribes. If Jesus was mistaken, then he's responsible for a lot of disappointment in this world. If Jesus was mistaken about his identity, if he wasn't really a savior, if he wasn't really powerful God here on earth, then he's responsible for millions dying with a false sense of hope then he's responsible for the countless martyrs of women and children and men throughout the ages. If Jesus is wrong, not even if he was lying, but if he was just wrong, that message is a curse upon this world. We cannot be neutral. Either we're for Jesus, or we eventually will become vastly against him. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2, talking about people before they knew Jesus. He says this, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of the sons of disobedience. He's talking about Satan, saying we're all, we were all under the influence of Satan among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is also a pretty heavy passage. It comes off harsh. It's saying that anybody who's not following Jesus is actually under the influence of Satan. I know that sounds mean and harsh, but what did we learn that Jesus does for people he finds bound by Satan? He binds Satan and goes and sets them free. He is a rescuer. And he's come to bring freedom to the captives, not to bring them shame. If you're not a Christian today, I would encourage you in the words of a biblical figure named Joshua. He said, choose this day whom you will serve. Do it now. Jesus is seeking to rescue and set us free from the bondage of our own sin and the bondage that's set upon us beyond what we even know. Blindness. Romans ten nine through 10 says this, because, and this is the reason why we're talking about speaking the Lord's name in, in salvation, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses. is saved this spoken confession is available for us today and it is good exercise for believers as well to speak that jesus is lord and believing and speaking that god raised him from the dead that is available to us today you know uh, for any of us here who fears that we you may have blasphemed the holy spirit I, i would encourage you with this if there's just a semblance of a desire for you to walk with Jesus today, no matter how frayed, that rope ladder remains intact. And maybe you even verbally have spoken an injurious report about the Holy Spirit himself. I, I know that there's a, uh, there's a thing called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit challenge where, where atheists say, you know, hey, say these words to, to defy the gospel of Jesus, and then you're done. It's, it's a, an, ex- a, an expression of final non-faith. Even if you've done that, or maybe you have by, by frustration, whatever, you may find today that those words that you spoke were mere words, and that they don't reflect the deep cultivation of your heart. But I would encourage you, again, to choose the stay whom you will serve, because one day they might, your heart might cultivate a deep disdain for Jesus. And I want to close with this passage. It's a testimony from Paul the Apostle. Um, He's he's widely considered one of the most influential people, not just in Christendom, of biblical uh, authorship, but also just in the world. And for a lot of people, they're He's their favorite writer of the Bible, or he's their favorite apostle. Or it's kind of nerdy to have one of those, I think. But I think people have that. Uh, but this, Paul, being one of, one of our greatest brothers in the Lord, one of our greatest brothers in the Lord, said this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly with unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. That resonates with me, and it may resonate with you this morning. And I would, I would encourage us to proclaim that goodness, to allow our hearts to cultivate an abundance of joy and proclamation for the gospel, and that we would speak it accordingly, that by God's grace, our words would vindicate us, that our words would be an expression to those we love and even to the ears of God of what lies in the depths of our hearts, and that it would be a love and a praise and an acceptance for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, Our Savior and our Friend. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good and kind. And uh, you have set us free from guilt. And I just want to pray over my brothers and sisters here that there wouldn't be even a uh, shred of misplaced guilt. Lord, let there be only true contrition, true conviction in this room that would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do what the Holy Spirit does, lead the guilty towards the person who saves them. And that the Holy Spirit would transform us and make us more like Jesus. That there would be no guilt that would... Bar us away from the work of the Holy Spirit, but only the guilt that would draw us closer to his work and draw us closer to Jesus, who draws us closer to you, Father. Your work is good and entirely holy. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room that we would be those who speak goodness, not those who speak evil. That we would speak gathering, not be those who speak scattering. Scattering we would not slander but we would proclaim the gospel truths we thank you lord for your your salvation and your efficacy for your power and your goodness we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name amen amen